Hello once again, your wonky yet affable host Ryan Luis Rodriguez here for The Chronicles Reconsidered, where we look back at previous mystery science theater experiments or Rift Tracks commentaries exclusively for you lovely subscribers here on Patreon. Did that introduction sound slightly different from the usual spiel? It should, because now that the podcast has reached its Rift Tracks phase, The Chronicles Reconsidered will shift its focus to movies that either got a raw deal by the guys at Rift Tracks or maybe just deserves a second appraisal. And this week, we're going to discuss one of the most misunderstood and subversive blockbusters of not only the 1990s, but of all time, Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers. Just what exactly was Verhoeven looking to subvert? How does it fit into his larger oeuvre? What is the actual message of the film? And do I have another personal story that makes me look like a total idiot? We're covering all of it right now. Would you like to know more? Verhoeven was born in the Netherlands, specifically Amsterdam, in 1938, just two years before the country was invaded by the Nazis during World War II. His parents uprooted to The Hague five years later in 1943, which was then the German Army's Netherlands headquarters, his family's home located next to a military base, which was repeatedly shelled by the Allied forces. This experience had a profound effect on shaping his worldview and his fascination with violence and wartime, which, alongside transgressive sexual politics and a strong atheistic interest in the story of Jesus, became thematic preoccupations in his filmmaking career. His feature directorial debut, 1971's Business is Business, was more financially successful in the Netherlands than Gone with the Wind, and led to even more successful follow-ups, 1973's Turkish Delight, 1975's Katie Teppel, the most expensive Dutch film ever made at that time, which was exceeded two years later with his next film, 1977's Soldier of Orange, also his first World War II period piece, and nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language Film of 1980. Also in 1980, he directed a highly controversial drama about dirt bike racers called Spethers. which caused a furor over its homosexual content, particularly a same-sex rape scene that still packs a punch. It's fucking ugly, and just so happens to be the earliest film of his I have seen. I don't recommend it. Verhoeven's next film, 1983's The Fourth Man, was his first to parlay into a successful box office run in the United States, and is a smutty, Hitchcock-influenced psychological thriller that intertwines the aforementioned interests. Sex, particularly taboo sex, Christianity, and graphic violence. The film's success led to his first English-language production, set in the 16th century, Flesh and Blood, starring his frequent leading man Rutger Hauer and Jennifer Jason Leigh, which marked his first true financial flop. The flop notwithstanding, Orion Pictures, the film's distributor, released his next film, the gleefully pitch-black satire Robocop, in 1987, one of the greatest films ever made. Robocop sets the tone for the rest of his career, turning senseless carnage into visual opera while making salient political arguments about consumerism and the corporatization of American municipal forces, 
all under the guise of populist popcorn. 1990's Total Recall takes Robocop's absurdist elements and kicks them into high gear, and 1992's Basic Instinct, influenced by his earlier film The Fourth Man, takes what is essentially lurid, nasty, hot trash and translates it into his biggest worldwide commercial success and revives a lot of the same controversies that plagued Verhoeven makes the disastrous decision to chase the controversy that Basic Instinct generated and make his next film an incredibly expensive erotic drama and the first mainstream studio NC-17 wide release, Showgirls. The film won the Golden Raspberry for Worst Picture, for whatever the fuck that's worth, and four years later won for Worst Picture of the Decade. It would be some time before Showgirls received the cult resurgence and reappraisal that it deserved, although I still think that the current label its most strident fans apply to it, that of satire, is erroneous. It's smarter than it appears to be, and definitely misunderstood, but it's not satire. Paradoxically, his next film was definitely a satire, and definitely much more misunderstood, 1997's Starship Troopers. worth fighting for but in the future the greatest threat to our survival will not be man at all Get, what's going on it's war we're going to war now the youth of tomorrow must travel across the stars to defend our world we are a generation commanded by fate to defend humankind everyone fights no one quits. But they will face an enemy more devastating than any ever imagined. The bugs laid a trap for us, didn't they? Prepare for battle and journey to the front lines of the next frontier. Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers had been in development for some time before Verhoeven boarded the project. Based on Robert Heinlein's 1959 novel of the same name, the screenplay was developed by Edward Neumeyer, the writer of Robocop, a screenplay that shares his similarly acidic bite. The novel shares a political perspective with its author, who gradually leaned increasingly more conservative and imagined a utopic, militaristic, essentially fascistic society that has evolved past racial and gender-based prejudice yet goes to war with an arachnid alien species whose depiction and description is alleged to be xenophobic. I've personally never read the book because anything I've ever read in reference to it makes it sound like disturbing right-wing garbage, so I can't confirm the xenophobia. As far as I understand it, though, that's kind of Heinlein's thing. So fuck that guy. Neumeyer had been a fan of the novel since childhood and jumped at the opportunity to adapt it, although when Verhoeven boarded the project as director, Neumeyer attempted to get him to read the book, but Verhoeven gave up on it after only a few chapters for the same reasons that I refused to pick it up. The right-wing garbage stuff. That didn't dissuade him from making a movie ostensibly based on that novel, though, but he did bake his unfavorable impression of Heinlein into the film. I'm not going to do a plot play-by-play -play because I didn't start podcasting to become the summary guy. I'm just going to discuss the overarching elements worth dialing into. The movie is set sometime in the 23rd century. All of society has been incorporated into the United Citizen Federation, a global nationalist empire where all media is state-run, 
broadcasting non-stop Lenny Riefenstahl-influenced propaganda and even executions, where citizenship is not a born privilege, but a right earned through military service. Do you want to vote or have children? Pick up a gun, motherfucker! Humanity is at war with arachnids, alien bugs from a planet called Klendathu. But these aliens didn't invade our homeland. We're the ones colonizing the universe. Some say the bugs were provoked by the intrusion of humans into their natural habitat. That a live and let live policy is preferable to war with the bugs. Let me tell you something. I'm from Buenos Aires, and I say kill them all! Yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah! Oh yeah! Verhoeven and Neumeyer saw the Federation as eager to go to war, having peaked as a utopia and desperate for an enemy to destroy after finally having gotten past killing each other. The movie uses this desire for conflict as a metatextual comment, aiming to work the film-going audience into a frenzy so that we too want to go to war with bugs, despite acknowledging that the whole thing is our fault. It's an indictment of a society that claims to abhor real-world violence and yet watches nothing but senseless action movies. You know, us. Although it's probably pretty good that we went on and did show a battle, because I think the, the audience for this movie also desperately wants the battle to start. But that would mean that the audience is fascist, that you cannot presume uh -oh. that. Well, that, um, but these films <laughs> always evoke that in the audience, don't they? I don't know. It's, of course, it, it, it plays with, with what you said in the beginning, that biologically fascist elements are perhaps available in the human species. And it plays perhaps with that, yeah. So it seduces them to to, to go for that kind of thinking, and then at the same time tells you, you might be wrong. You should not go to war. Now, do you think maybe the audience didn't like that, that we told them that they might be fascists and that they might, should not enjoy this entertainment? Was that maybe a mistake? Our protagonist is Casper Van Dien as Johnny Rico, 30-year-old high school senior in Buenos Aires and mobile infantry hopeful, who joins the military despite his wealthy parents' objections. His girlfriend, Carmen Ibanez, played by Denise Richards, hopes to become a pilot. His best friend, Carl Jenkins, noted suit enthusiast Neil Patrick Harris, is a psychic who has eyes for military intelligence. After graduation, all three head to their future. Johnny in basic training, Carmen in the fleet, Carl, wherever intelligence goes. Shortly thereafter, Buenos Aires is destroyed by an arachnid asteroid, which the humans take as justification to invade Klendathu, although it seems that even if the arachnids didn't attack us, we would have found our way to their home planet eventually. Now, you may have noticed that these actors are Caucasian, and at least two of these characters have decidedly non-white names. This is never explained in the actual picture, or as far as I can tell, in the audio commentary that we will be referencing. Consequently, the film has always been subject to claims of whitewashing, which may be entirely valid. I've always interpreted it as a white country, probably America, having gone to war with Argentina and other South American countries centuries earlier, and having so thoroughly decimated the population and sired countless generations with the survivors that they essentially eugenically engineered a new, bland, white society. I may, however, be giving the filmmakers far too much credit. Maybe they just wanted to make sure that the movie played well domestically, which meant white actors, and they either neglected to change the central location and the character names, or just didn't care. Based on what we know about the entertainment industry, that's likely the plausible answer. But I still like my interpretation better. Anyway, we go to Klendathu for a nice Vietnam-reminiscent treatment of Death from Above, 
firebombing their harsh desert planet with impunity, always implementing far more force than necessary and seemingly suffering no ill effects from prevalent nuclear warfare. This, in itself, is inspired by the atomic panic subgenre of films from the 1950s, which reflected our post-war nuclear anxieties by pitting everyman humans against monsters that were just Earth insects made bloodthirsty and gargantuan through exposure to radiation. Robert Heinlein, who supported dealing with our opposing world powers like the Soviet Union and China with an iron fist, wrote the novel in a couple weeks as a reaction to the United States suspending its nuclear testing as it headed into the 60s, which he saw as demoralizing. The movie takes Heinlein's peace with nukes and comments on it by having his soldiers not facing bugs warped by radiation, but obliterating naturally large extraterrestrial bugs with nukes. While on Klandathu and attempting to locate a distress call sent by a Federation outpost, the military discovers the existence of a so-called brain bug, which resembles a massive corpulent grub with a pointy proboscis that can pierce the human skull and, you guessed it, suck out our brains. They believe that the brain bug acts as the leader and organizes the bug troops, which explains why they're able to organize despite seemingly being unable to reason or act on anything other than instinct. After losing a considerable amount of their troops on a needlessly retaliatory campaign, which presciently feels like our response to 9-11 by going to war with Iraq, even though the movie was released five years before, we capture the brain bug, threaten it with nuclear annihilation, and Doogie Hauser psychically peers into its, uh, brain, and makes an important conclusion. What's it thinking, Colonel? <laughs> These are the heroes, deriving joy and elation from the self-made enemy's fear, which I believe is the very definition of terrorism. Again, prescient. Now, something I merely alluded to before but will now expound upon the crux of the subversion of Starship Troopers is based around the fascistic imagery and undertones. The Federation flag is emblazoned with an eagle, which has been interpreted as a reference to the Nazi eagle and swastika that the Third Reich employed. Neumeyer and Verhoeven claim that the Federation design is based on a Navajo eagle and mention that Americans have eagles on our currency. Fair point. Let's dismiss the eagle. The costumes, however, specifically those of military intelligence, are based on those of the Nazis. When Neil Patrick Harris appears at the end of the film, having ascended to the top ranks of intelligence, he is dressed as a stormtrooper, both in terms of overall design principle and the use, or rather lack of, color. In the riff tracks, this inspires the following riff, a recurring point of contention. Even I get the heavy-handed Nazi imagery, and I'm Denise Richards. Well, people didn't get it, especially not at first. Roger Ebert was considered a pretty analytical film critic, one of our greatest, and this is how he interpreted the film. Quote, The bugs aren't important except as props for the interminable action scenes and as an enemy to justify the film's quasi-fascist militarism. End quote. Already, he's accusing the movie of being fascist, not satirizing fascism. He goes on, quote, 
the one redeeming merit for director Paul Verhoeven's film is that by remaining faithful to Heinlein's material and period, it adds an element of sly satire. End quote. Ebert claims to have read Heinlein's book several times as an adolescent, which makes it puzzling that he would think that it was a faithful adaptation, something that literally no one else has ever seriously accused Verhoeven of. He goes on yet further, quote, This is like the squarest but most technically advanced sci-fi movie of the 1950s, a film in which the sets and costumes look like a cross between Buck Rogers and the Archie comic books. End quote. No, the costumes and sets are based on Nazis. The Archie aspect is there, but the entire design is based around being as close to wartime propaganda as they can be while still technically representing science fiction. Heinlein was big into the concept of powered armor, which is not a factor here. Further, quote, The film's narration is handled by a futuristic version of the TV news crossed with the web. End quote. No, it's not a version of the news. It's propaganda, also known as fake news. It's designed to give you the least substantial talking points and manipulate you into being subservient. He makes it all sound so benign and boring, and it gets worse. Quote, Unlike the Star Wars movies, which embraced a joyous vision and great comic invention, Starship Troopers doesn't resonate. It's one-dimensional. We smile at the satirical asides, but where's the warmth of human nature? The spark of genius or rebellion? If Star Wars is humanist, Starship Troopers is totalitarian. End quote. As we addressed in last week's Bonus Chronicles, I find it strange that someone could ever call Star Wars humanist. A franchise that was built around pure goodness versus absolute evil, yet the goodness has no problem blowing up countless spaceships and space stations filled with human souls. Where shooting as many stormtroopers as you want is okay, even when we acknowledge that a lot of them were stolen as babies and conscripted into genocidal servitude. Where you can tell if someone is worth killing by the color of the glowing stick in their hand. Here's Jeff Weiss, film critic for Deseret News, based in Utah. I didn't have to tell you that they're based in Utah because you'll understand it implicitly. I just wanted to be crystal clear. Quote, Starship Troopers is a non-stop splatterfest so devoid of taste and logic that it makes even the most brainless summer blockbusters look intelligent. End quote. Uh, no, it's really not. Further, quote, With this film, Verhoeven finally proves once and for all that showgirls and basic instinct weren't aberrations. He really has no restraint when it comes to presenting objectionable content, especially sex and graphic violence. End quote. Okay. Presenting? I'm pretty sure he makes his violence as horrific as possible to demonstrate the consequences of it. He does enjoy doing it, but there's an element of commentary. But you gotta love the part about sex. Nothing specific, just sex, penises and vaginas, is objectionable. See what I mean about guessing the guys from Utah? By the way, Utah shares a border with the state used for the Clendathu exteriors, Wyoming. And in the movie, a sect of Mormon extremists set up a colony on a bug planet called Port Joe Smith before being slaughtered. None of these things probably inform Mr. Jeff Weiss's repressed generalizations. I just love trivia. Janet Maslin from the New York Times, quote, The movie for everyone is, in this case, only for everyone who likes raw meat for breakfast. Still, it certainly can pander, what with pretty actors, grisly critters, 
brains sucked out of skulls, buckets of green slime, and a plot that is half beach blanket bingo, half Iwo Jima. Gung-ho patriotism is also big here. What with the cries of the only good bug is a dead bug, and you will kill everything that has more than two legs, you get me? End quote. Wow. Talk about reading only the surface. I really don't understand how anyone, even in 1997, could get the impression that Verhoeven found anything in the world he was depicting, either ideologically or aesthetically worthwhile. Something he said at the time, and has repeated since, is that the message of the film is, quote, war makes fascists of us all, end quote. We fear a brain bug, but all of our television is state-run which might as well inject a bendy straw into our cerebellum and start sucking. Here's that audio commentary, again, released on the special edition DVD five years after the theatrical release, just in time for the country's eagerness to go to war with Iraq because we needed more enemies. In fact, it's saying, of course, that this fascist propaganda that is kind of apparent in the movie should be really read, at least that's how we meant it, should be read as something that is not good. So whenever you see something that you think is fascist, you should know that the makers coincide with your opinion thinking that it is not good. That is not a good statement and this is not good politics. And if you see a black uniform, you should also know bad, bad, bad. You know, it's very simple. By the way, if Verhoeven sounds like a madman, that's because he is. Uh, we shot all these scenes, of course, without any, any of these insects around. They were all added digitally. So all the actors had continuously to act uh, as if there was something right in front of them that was threatening and dangerous and that would run towards them. But of course, uh, there was nothing there. And um, the only thing that we could do, Phil and I, is to, to, um, to be the bugs, to yell and scream and run towards them in the rehearsal so they could have getting some feeling uh, of what was going on. Me, of course, screaming like, ah! It wasn't until really the last decade that critics have given Starship Troopers the fair shake it deserved, with countless articles restoring its satirical impact and even the Onion AV Club declaring it the fifth best movie of 1997 after Boogie Nights, Irma Vep, Face Off, and Jackie Brown. I agree with Boogie Nights and Jackie Brown. The first time I ever saw the film, it was on VHS the year after its theatrical release, at a friend's sleepover. Unlike my parents, who forbade me from renting rated R movies on video, my friend's parents clearly had no problem with it. I think at the time, I only responded to the nudity. I had such a crush on Dina Meyer, the actress who plays Dizzy, and her disrobing is certainly etched into my memory. In my defense, I had never seen Triumph of the Will, so the subtext probably wouldn't have that much of an impact. Boobies, though? Definitely got those. I actually had a chance to see this in a theater, but I blew it. Every Friday, the San Jose Mercury News published a supplemental magazine called The Eye, where you would get that week's movie reviews, which came with a summary of all the stuff that Jeff Weiss would call objectionable. Sex, violence, all the good stuff that you go to see movies for. Since I really had to convince my parents to let me see anything above my age level, I memorized this content stuff pretty quickly, because I knew I could work around certain things. Anyway, my cousin Kathy was visiting with her son Tyler the week that Starship Troopers came out, and although her relationship with my mom was a sisterly one, she had none of the hang-ups that my parents had. She would routinely watch HBO shows with her kids and be unaffected. 
Kathy, in case you didn't notice, is fucking cool. So Kathy wanted to take Tyler and I to a movie. She asked if we wanted to see Starship Troopers. Instinctively, I blurted out that the film contained too much sex and nudity, because I knew eventually my mom or dad would find out that they let me go to see this kind of movie, and Cousin Kathy would never be allowed to take me to a movie theater ever again. Okay, I guess your mom would want us to see something else, she said. Tyler punched me in the arm. Good going, dude. I was such a stupid kid. It is on that wistful note that we conclude the first episode of The Chronicles Reconsidered for 2021. Thank you for keeping this little cottage industry alive through your patronage. Next week on the free podcast, we wrap up the first decade and a half of Rift Tracks' Just the Jokes commentaries with button-mashing punch-em-ups, self-important monochromatic superhero slogs, some regrettably shitty avenues of comedy, and we'll say, oh hi! to a unique auteur. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Of course, you already have access to next week's episode here on the Patreon feed, but you knew that. Next Friday, the 29th, we'll use the free feed as a jumping-off point and dive deep into the bewildering, inexplicable filmography of one Thomas Wiseau. No matter how agonizing that may sound, I implore you, don't worry about it. Until then, take care, and thank you for being a subscriber. Darn, that's the end.